Hi, and welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court and other stuff. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover all those court-like entities for Slate. And today we are going to bring you a bonus live episode because I wanted to share a discussion I just had the honor of moderating at the ACLU's National Conference in Washington, D.C. earlier this week. As you know, we've been widening the lens of the show to occasionally discuss the troubling erosion of and threats to the rule of law uh, writ large in the age of Trump and to courts and lawyers in the age of Trump. And this discussion features some of really the very best legal minds in America examining just that question. And when I say very best legal minds, I'm really not kidding around. The panel included prominent constitutional law expert, veteran of many Supreme Court oral arguments, and the national legal director of the ACLU, David Cole, former acting assistant attorney general and head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, and current president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Vanita Gupta, eminent law professor at the University of Minnesota and former chief ethics lawyer in the White House of George W. Bush, Richard Painter. You may remember him from our emoluments conversations. And finally, the experienced litigator and federal prosecutor, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and current distinguished visiting lecturer in law at the University of Alabama, Joyce White Vance. So it was quite a panel. And the conversation, I think, is so useful for folks who've been tracking these issues on this show. So enjoy. So I want to welcome you to this plenary panel and I want to welcome amicus listeners who are listening disembodied uh, also. And I want to just say how honored and thrilled I am to be uh, moderating this panel at this uh, moment. And uh, I think I want to start with the lightning round panelists. And I want to ask you a question that's been on my mind for the last couple of days as I've been thinking about this panel, which is that the words rule of law have almost entirely lost meaning to me in the last year. It's, it's, it's a phrase that made sense to me throughout law school, throughout my career, and rule of law now is just an inchoate notion. And it can mean everything from respect for the Constitution, ontological truth and language and words. It can mean belief in an independent judiciary. I I don't know what rule of law means. And so I think it would help this conversation for folks to have some sense when you in your head think about, oh, this is an erosion of the rule of law. What does that mean to you? David, let's start with you. So, I guess I think the rule of law is about uh, the concept that power must be constrained, uh, that um, and, and it must be constrained in order to protect those who do not have power. And so for me, it's uh, the notion of checks and balances, uh, uh, which at the end of the day are there to protect liberty uh, and to protect those who cannot protect themselves through the political process. Joyce? So I think one of the core concepts of the rule of law is this notion that no individual person is above the law. We don't make it up as we go along. We have a set of rules that are defined in advance, and everyone knows what's fair game, what kind of conduct they can engage in, 
and what's prohibited, and we don't move those goalposts for one person, like, say, a president of the United States who wants to move them. Um, so, yeah. Benita. Well, David and Joyce um, have kind of said it, but I think it's really important to remember that for so much of this nation's history, and even right now, the rule of law has also been a source of oppression. And to get back to David's point, though, is that communities and marginalized communities have always depended on institutions and knowing the norms in order to change those, what the rule of law has been in this country. And that right now, with the corrosion of almost every democratic institution, from the courts to the census, which determines political power and economic power in communities all over the country, uh, to the attacks on the free press, attacks on the federal judiciary and the like, these very core institutions that are fundamental to being able to have the robust conversation and struggles around what the rule of law means, what democracy means for the, most, the, the least among us, um, they are being fundamentally transformed in ways that is going to make justice that much more difficult for people to achieve and reach. And that's where I think we are in an unprecedented moment in this country around, around these issues. Richard Painter, what does the rule of law mean in your head? The rule of law uh, is essentially about not succumbing to absolute power. Uh, not using government to push the agenda of one's own particular religious sectarian um, uh, group or racial group on others. To live with other people in a democracy, in a, rep a republican form of government. Uh, and uh, what we're going through right now is a very a very worrisome challenge to the rule of law. Uh, we have had a Republican form of government in this country for well over 200 years, but we can lose it. Um, Germany lost a, a Republican form of government uh, in the 1930s after only about 15 years because of these same types of pressures where people focus on their racial identity and their religious identity uh, and obsess on their differences rather than coming together to support uh, a democracy a rule of, uh, with a rule of law. And uh, our Constitution is something that we need to value and we need to defend. And uh, that's not what's going on right now here in Washington. So, so Richard, I think I want to start with you just because chronologically, uh, you made the word emoluments cool before anyone knew what an emolument was. And, and I, I think I joked last week when there was a Scott Pruitt, there was some question about him sending security staff out to get expensive hand lotion. And I joked, they've put the emollients into the emoluments <laughs> clause. Um, but I, I, I've been waiting to make that joke for a year and a half. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Scott Pruitt. And, and, and we're done. Um, but, but Richard, I think that the lens that you have kind of offered into this conversation about law and norms and the rule of law is that of corruption and self-dealing. And I wonder if, you know, as the lawsuits progress, if you have a sense that this is salient 
for people, that people understand that there's a foreign and a domestic emoluments clause, uh, that the, there are uh, long-standing norms around divestment and openness. I mean, this has been something that you have put front and center a, a year in. Do you have a sense that folks are registering that this is urgently important as a rule of law constitutional issue, or is it just way too complicated? Well, uh, the word emoluments is somewhat strange to people. Uh, it has a Latin root emolumentum. Uh, you look at Dr. Samuel Johnson's dictionary, 1755, it just means profits and benefits. It's something the founders understood, uh, that uh, it would be very easy for foreign governments to corrupt American officials if you allowed American officials to be doing business with the foreign governments. Uh, and uh, this is a topic I wrote about uh, long before Donald Trump came along. I was worried, our and I still am worried, that our campaign finance system uh, after Citizens United will allow foreign governments to infiltrate our democracy, uh, with or without Donald Trump. Uh, so I'd written a book on this topic back in 2000, early 2016, didn't even mention Trump. I kind of think this joker will get elected president. But uh, it's a serious threat. Uh, our founders anticipated this threat uh, of foreign governments using their money to infiltrate uh, our government, uh, of taking back through money that which they could not win through force of arms in the American Revolution. Uh, and it's quite clear uh, what's going on uh, with Donald Trump, and that's why I pointed that out. I tried to in the summer of 2016. Uh, I used to live in New York uh, when I was a lawyer and, you know, when I was much younger. And all I know about Donald Trump is he borrowed a lot of money from uh, people around New York and elsewhere and never paid it back. So we know he's borrowing money from somebody somewhere, dependent on somebody. I don't know who it is because he won't disclose the tax returns. But this is exactly the problem the founders anticipated. We need to take it very, very seriously, uh, what's going on with foreign governments, uh, and ask ourselves basic questions such as, why does our president suddenly start tweeting about jobs in China right after he gets a good business deal from China? Do other folks on the panel have thoughts about whether, as a, as a rule of law issue, this has traction? With, do, do, do folks out there think that this is an incandescent crime of corruption, or is this just something that is not tracking or resonating uh, with the American people? I, I mean, I, I think that... Um, Initially, it did. Uh, you know, when, when Trump uh, had been elected, and was, and the question was, what was he going to do with his assets, and was he going to uh, divest them and put them in a blind trust, or whether was he going to basically deal from his office in the interest of his business? Um, but he has done so much since then that uh, deserves outrage. Uh, that this and this this could be said of almost everything he's done. He's done so much since he did the last thing that deserves outrage that we uh, lose sight of the of, of the outrage before. But I do think it's it is it is core and is critical because one of the aspects of the rule of law is separating out public office and public service from private interest and private gain. And and Donald Trump just doesn't understand that that those two are two different things. And uh, and the rule of law is designed to to reinforce that and to and to essentially uh, impose a kind of impulse control. There could be, and I still think there may be, a tipping point at which these things all come together and people um, really stand up together. 
I think this notion of self-dealing and corruption does resonate. There's a lot of people in this country who just are very confused by all the things that the president's getting away with, right? And if I think of Scott Pruitt, I mean, I cannot imagine another administration where a Scott Pruitt would still be running a cabinet agency. Everything has come out about this man. And what I think is so dangerous about the moment that we're in with the kind of all of these things that are coming out, and David's right, it's like this was like the first big thing that came out, and since then now there's like 1,500, you know, scary um, uh, aspects of our democracy that what I worry about the most is that we begin to legitimize this, that it just becomes normal. It's just too much on a daily basis, the relentless kind of absurdities that the administration is you know, getting away with. But when you think about it and you stop to really focus on Scott Pruitt or some of these concerns on corruption and self-dealing, um, we can't, any one of these would have been a massive scandal in another administration. And that's, you know, that's on all of us to figure out how do we keep this focus? How do we keep vigilant? How do we refuse to let any of this ever become normal? And there's a very practical lesson here, which is Vanita's last point. We have norms that seemed like they could never be broken. The idea, for instance, that presidents would self-deal, that an Ivanka Trump would get trademarks in exchange, apparently, for government policy. So what we'll have to do at the end of this administration is put new laws in place that make sure that presidents release their tax returns, that self-dealing is more explicitly made a federal crime so that folks like Richard um, and Norm Eisen will have better laws to litigate against. These unthinkables have really finally become thinkable. And because there have been so many of these different corruption issues, one on top of the other, our institutions, our rule of law, has not had the teeth it needs to deal with them. That, I think, is one of our big challenges after it's over, making sure we bring new teeth to the law. So, so let me ask you this. This other big framing question that I enter into this debate with, and that is we do have constitutional remedies. Uh, that We have impeachment as a remedy. We have the 25th Amendment as a remedy. These have been floated. There's a conversation going on right now. Joshua Matz and Lawrence Tribe have written a book suggesting that impeachment is may or may not uh, uh, be uh, required legally and, and constitutionally, but it's tactically not smart right now. So I think the question I want to ask you, you're all very good lawyers. What's the constitutional off-ramp here? Is there a constitutional off-ramp or is the off-ramp we vote? So I, th I think the Constitution is a solution in this sense, that um, you know, the Constitution envisioned uh, an autocratic leader, and it created a set of checks and balances that were designed to check autocratic leaders. It did not envision one-party control. Uh, and when one party controls the presidency, Congress, the Supreme Court, two-thirds of the state legislatures, those formal checks and balances aren't as effective as uh, they are in times of divided government. But they also envisioned and recognized the importance of civil society as a uh, as a checking function of the citizenry uh, coming together in organizations uh, like the ACLU uh, to stand up for the rights and values uh, that are under attack. The press, 
uh, right, which can stand up, and its job is to stand up to power and to uh, uh, to disclose wrongdoing and the like. And to me, one of the most uh, encouraging things in this period is how many people have stood up uh, and 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 joined organizations like ours, uh, increased their support of organizations like Planned Parenthood or Crew or the Leadership Conference or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund started new organizations like Indivisible and various democ- Protect Democracy and, and, and the like, uh, that, that's where our salvation lies. It's ultimately, it's ultimately up to us. But that is protected by the Constitution. Where in the Constitution? By the First Amendment, the right to speak, the right to associate, the right of the press, uh, the right to assembly, uh, and the right to petition your government. That is a check on government abuse if we use it. So, can I, oh, sorry, Benita? David's absolutely right, but I, just doing this work and being in the resistance, so to speak, for the last uh, many months, to me, it just, what, what's happening right now through one-party rule is that there, is, there are no checks and balances or insufficient ones, at least from Congress, right? Like, Congress has just basically been asleep at the switch, supporting everything this president has done. And to me, fundamentally, this cannot continue. And it all comes down to voting in November. I cannot, everything that we care about is at stake right now. And there is a moment in November where people have to vote their values and have to come out and vote. And we've been seeing this in Virginia, in Alabama, and other places where a narrative that was deeply polarizing, racist, uh, you know, led by candidates who are seeking to achieve office was soundly rejected. And if we don't, we've got the courts at stake, where Trump is swiftly remaking the courts in terrifying ways. You know, the census with the citizenship question now having been added, there, we've got new evidence that Bannon and Chris Kobach were behind the addition of the citizenship question and kind of clear black and white documents that the Justice Department had to submit in litigation on Friday. Uh, they're going to set the rules of, of the debate. And unless we turn this around, everything else and all of these checks and balances, we will continue to fight. There is such tremendous energy, but we've got to be able to translate it into people turning out into the polls and shifting the dynamics because of how much is at stake right now in November. I want to reflect on the fact that we're, we're a couple minutes in and nobody said Robert Mueller, so I'm just going to say Robert Mueller. And then I'm going to say, sometimes I get nervous because I think that Robert Mueller is the corrective that David and Vanita are talking about, where everybody says, it's okay, because Robert Mueller is going to save us. And almost, I think, sometimes we're at the point where there's this other reality show we're watching, the Robert Mueller show. And even though it's all happening in the dark, you know, every indictment, every uh, leak, every whisper, every Russian, every, you know, transaction uh, swells to fill the entirety of the evening news. Is putting too much stock in the magic of the Mueller uh, probe and whatever its consequences may be another version of putting too much faith in uh, impeachment? Are we just way too magical in our thinking that, you know, the lawyer on the white horse is going to save us all? Well, Robert Mueller's charge is to focus on crimes that were committed in connection with Russia. 
He's not getting into other stuff. There's not a Ken Starr situation where we get into the president's sex life. Uh, he's not going to stray from his core focus, uh, which is Russia and criminal activity having to do with Russia. So there may very well have been collaboration with the Russians that was not criminal, but that is extremely worrisome. And he's not going to be able to file an indictment over that. Furthermore, there are serious crimes to be committed, serious violations of the United States Constitution that have absolutely nothing to do with Russia and are not within Robert Mueller's purview. So he is a great prosecutor. Uh, don't believe all the uh, unfounded attacks you hear on Robert Mueller, uh, on Fox or wherever, um, from so-called experts. He is doing his job, but his job is focused on a narrow set of issues, maybe not that narrow given the amount of Russian interference in this election and criminal activity surrounding that and the number of indictments. But we need to go beyond that. The Constitution is very clear that the executive branch it does not have a limited power. The Congress has the power to investigate and, yes, to impeach when circumstances warrant. We are well past where we were in 1973 when the House and the Senate Judiciary Committee had hearings. I still remember Sam Ehrman uh, over there in the, the Senate and R Redino, Peter Redino in the House and those hearings when I was 12 years old. It's about time they get down to business and have the hearings, and we'll figure out whether the evidence justifies impeachment. But it's going to involve a lot of topics going well beyond the scope of the Mueller investigation. Danita? Uh, there are no single saviors that are going to get us out of this mess. Look, I think that the attacks on Mueller's investigation um, are so deeply concerning, and it's why we all need to be out in the streets if Trump uh, fires Mueller or if... Um, uh, but, uh, but I will say, how many of us are afraid of President Pence? I mean, let, let's be honest. Like, this is not right. Okay, I would expect everyone's hand to be raised in this room. Um, like, let's be clear about what it is that we are, the change that we are seeking to make. And I think that the concern about Mueller being fired is just that, again, it is the clearest statement that Trump believes he is a king and that he does not understand uh, the very basic functions of our democracy and that he is not above the law. And this Justice Department uh, only survives with, in the, with the notion that nobody is above the law. That is fundamental and inherent to, um, to our democracy. And so that's why I am so deeply concerned. I know so many are so concerned about the Mueller investigation. Frankly, you know, uh, whatever the outcome is, we still have to deal with a more fundamental set of issues because losing Trump may just bring in President Pence, and then where are we? And we have to, it, this has to more fundamentally be about our values. I care about the Mueller investigation because I care about everything it says about, about our democracy and who Trump th thinks he is, but we've got to have a much broader view of the change that we need to see in this country. Joyce, did you have... So, you know, I'm interested in the comment that you make that Mueller is magical. And we've all seen that idea out there, right? It's almost as though he's a savior who's going to ride in on a white horse. And like Richard says, that won't happen. And the reason it won't happen is because that is not his role under the rule of law. If we really respect the rule of law, we respect it when it helps us. And we respect it when we wish it could do more than it could do in a particular situation. But Mueller's job and, and the job of his team of investigators and prosecutors 
is to determine whether the criminal law of the United States has been violated. And I'll tell you as a former prosecutor that they will not indict unless they believe they can prove it in a court in front of a jury of whoever the defendants are as peers beyond a reasonable doubt. It's an incredibly high standard. I know people love to say prosecutors can indict a ham sandwich, and sure you can, but what's the point if you can't convict it at trial? So that's what Mueller's focus is. And that leaves a big job for all of us to do. That job is what happens if there's an increment of proof that something less than beyond a reasonable doubt, but more than just a mere suspicion. What if there is, and, and I think those of you who pay attention to the news, which is probably all of you, there's now increasingly evidence in the public domain that lets us know that something happened here that wasn't right. So whether Mueller indicts or not, we will have, I think, the obligation to make sure that his work is fulfilled, whether that's hearings on the Hill, which I think real hearings are long overdue, bipartisan hearings, a commission, or, or whether it's indivisible, whether it's how we vote in November and in 2020, but we can't let Mueller be the end-all and the be-all. That's not his focus within the rule of law. It is astounding to me that I'm sitting with, with four lawyers who are saying law is going to be part of the solution, but it's not the solution. The solution is, you know, to, to, to paraphrase what Vanita just said, you know, if Mueller is fired, people are going to have to take to the streets. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I keep reflecting on, you know, the day after the travel ban. Uh, you know, you saw it firsthand, you know, every nerd lawyer with a laptop, you know, at the arrivals gate, you know, trying to teach themselves immigration law. But really, they were like real estate lawyers. But they really showed up. I suspect I speak for a lot of lawyers when I say, I want to know what 2.0 of that looks like when lawyers get activated. And I worry a little bit, I guess I want to push back, Vanita, on the notion that it's when Mueller is fired because there's other ways to do this. You can fire Rod Rosenstein. You can fire Jeff Sessions. You can scuttle this investigation in ways that will not trigger that, okay, lawyers, grab your laptops, hit the streets. And so I think what I'm asking you, and it's certainly the question I get day in, day out, I suspect you do too, what is that break the glass moment for lawyers? And what if we missed it? And how are we going to know? So there's an existential question. Uh, David, you want to take it? I tell my law students, you know, if you go to law school, you are accepting the notion of incremental change. You are not a revolutionary. Law and revolution don't really go together. Revolution is overthrowing uh, legal regimes. So I think it takes a lot for lawyers to break the glass, but I think there's a tremendous amount that lawyers can do and have been doing, and we've seen Muslim ban, you know, 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0 and 5.0 in terms of the, um, the activities that lawyers have engaged in to stand up with the support of the citizenry uh, against the kinds of things that Trump, Donald Trump has done. And, you know, we, we said two days after President Trump was elected, we put out a full-page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post said, you know, if you do the things you said you're going to do, we'll see you in court. And uh, we have indeed seen him in court. And the Muslim ban was the first, uh, the first case, but we've sued him over the transgender military ban. We've sued him over separating 
uh, immigrant families. We've sued him over revocation of DACA. Uh, we've sued him over denying uh, young women in immigration custody their right to uh, choose to have an abortion. Uh, we've uh, sued him over sanctuary uh, cities. We have sued him over detaining a, a U.S. citizen uh, as an enemy combatant without charges. And time and time again, uh, we have prevailed in the courts, at least at the, at the lower levels. So, so I have on my Twitter feed a kind of regular feature, we'll see you in court, episode number, and I think I'm up to episode 121 of our efforts to fight back against the Trump administration using uh, the courts. And, and I think that's a critical part of this, of this notion of the rule of law. That is that we can fight back against someone who is in some sense, revolutionary by, in, by, by uh, reinforcing the values and laws that this country stands for at its best, not by, uh, uh, you know, some sort of revolutionary uh, means. The courts aren't going to save us unless we're saving the courts. And right now they are being radically reformed and remade. And my, my thing about litigation is in reaction to something, right? That's, it's important. We've got the Constitution. Some, we need to be defending it. And it's, but it is not necessarily the thing that is going to build power in our communities to, for the change and public will and the kind of values that we need. And that is the work that all of you and all of us are called upon. And so I'm not, obviously litigation remains a vital, vital tool in, in stemming this, but I really think that so much of what we're seeing right now is that millions of people who never thought of themselves as activists before are going into the streets. They're becoming plaintiffs in ACLU lawsuits. They are, uh, you know, they're, they're figuring out, they're donating organizations in ways that they, they, they feel like they are, we are fighting for the soul of our country. And that is what people are called to do right now. And so we, we can't, there isn't one tactic. We, in order, if we're going to save the courts because we want the courts to save us, we've got to organize and vote and change one party rule in Washington and, and change, you know, the makeup of state legislatures. We've got to fight for the census because redistricting and political power will be determined by the census and we will live with those consequences as we have been since 2010 with the radical remaking of state legislatures around the country uh, through redistricting and gerrymandering. And so this is about organizing more fundamentally right now. To me, is it, it's really about getting out there, using every tool we have, and litigation is vitally important. But in the end of the day, we've got to be organizing for the kinds of values that we believe in, because that is truly, to me, what's what's fundamentally at stake. It's, it's such an important uh point, Vanita, and I, I think it actually has two prongs, and I'd love to hear what you all think about the second. The first prong is, you know, we're going to have to get good judges on the courts. It is, if one thinks about the kinds of judges who are not getting through the Senate Judiciary Committee, it's, you know, you have to have overtly written explicitly horrifying racist things or not know what, you know, basic rules of evidence are. And that's disqualifying. Everyone else gets through. But I also think that something under what you're saying is so important, which is that courts don't tweet back. Courts don't respond to attacks. And when the president delegitimizes an entire branch of government or goes after one judge or calls, you know, a so-called judge, if we don't bolster 
the idea of an independent judiciary, not just judge by judge, but the whole notion that courts are not in a posture to defend themselves, I think that's a place where we have not always stepped up because, again, I think there's magical thinking around courts protecting themselves. Do you disagree? I totally agree. It's been one of the biggest uh, sources of stress for me right now is the fact that progressives just have not understood that the courts are not going to, the infrastructure of the courts is not going to protect itself. You know, when Roy Moore was running for Senate in your great state, Joyce, in Alabama, uh, there were voters, like I remember reading this Washington Post article, where voters were saying, we don't like Roy Moore, but man, do we care about the Supreme Court. You just don't have that volume on the progressive side, where the, the right has been, they're 25 years ahead of us in terms of the funding, and, and we are playing an asymmetrical war on trying to protect uh, for a fair and independent judiciary. And I just don't think that we as a community and as a movement have really understood what we are going to have to do to, to protect it. And frankly, the racist uh, nominees are making it through. I mean, the only ones that have been that have been uh, withdrawn have been the folks who didn't know what a motion in limine was or, um, you know, there was one who said that... Uh, uh, transgender children are, are Satan's spawn and ultimately through blogging like was withdrawn. But there, we, we have a lot of nominees making it through who are refusing to say that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. I mean, that is the level at which we are at. And, and the swift speed with which this is happening, I mean, it is kind of the boiling of the frog that we are watching this happen on our watch and we will pay, we will be living with the consequences of this for generations. D does anyone else on the panel have thoughts about how folks who don't necessarily have a great idea about how to protect an independent judicial branch. And I single out the judicial branch, although, of course, we know that, you know, the FBI and the Justice Department and everybody who's being delegitimized has the same concern. But I think the asymmetry you're talking about uh, with respect to the courts really does frighten me viscerally. Are there thoughts about what the message is around an independent court, particularly when every judge, including Republican appointees, who votes against Trump gets tagged as a judge of the resistance. How do we try to continue to message that even in these polarized times, the courts are different? Well, one of the concerns, that I, and I've had this concern for decades, there's been a lot of talk on left and right about how judging is really just a political act. Uh, and that uh, there are always political or biases behind all these decisions by the judges. They're teaching a lot of that in the law schools over the years. And yes, there is some of that. Judges are not going to be entirely neutral uh, in everything. Uh, but if you describe judges as being somehow just another political branch, being politically motivated, uh, you know, that is very dangerous. Judges have an obligation, as best they can, to uphold the law, not to further the interests of their own particular religious group or whatever it might be. And there's been way too much of that rhetoric, and we need to stand firm for an independent judiciary and for objective truth. Uh, there is right and wrong. There is a constitution. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the great fears I had is when the right wing the far right wing discovered identity politics. And what do you see? You have people who may feel very strongly about we should move the embassy to Jerusalem. I don't agree. 
But that is no justification to go on CNN and protect this, defend this president in violating our constitutional rights on every other issue. That's identity politics run amok on the right wing. And how about Scott Pruitt? People say they're Christian and that he's a Christian and therefore everything he does is okay. Now he hasn't read the first book of Genesis that God created the earth while he's destroying it. But this is, well, because he is my particular type of Christian, I will excuse his abuse of power, his waste of public funds, his renting a house from a lobbyist, basically it's a payoff, who works for the energy industry. Uh, this is the, the type of mindset that is extremely dangerous in a country. It's what destroyed the Weimar Republic. Uh, and it's what could destroy us. When you view your identity with a particular religious group or ethnic group as somehow being more important than a democracy, that's what's going on in the Trump administration right now, and that's what's going on with the people who are defending the Trump administration, whether it's on CNN, Fox News, or anywhere else. And we need to stand up against it. It's just flat out wrong. Joyce, did you have a did you have a, a gloss on protecting an independent judiciary? So I just go back to something that Benita said and make the point that we are so far behind the conservative movement and the Republican Party in creating high value for people who who believe the things that we believe, creating high value for the importance of the judiciary. Because I have had the same conversation with so many of my Republican friends in the last few months. And it's gone something like this. How can you continue to support this president? He's doing X, Y, Z, whatever that week's horribles are. And they will tell you over and over, well, I don't like, you know, I don't like the fact that they're tearing children away from their moms at the border, but I'm willing to put up with that because aren't we getting great federal judges? And, and look at the Supreme Court. A and that is something that we don't fully process. We don't fully appreciate the sacrifices that the other side is willing to make in order to get the next Supreme Court pick. We need to take that issue head on. We need to make sure people understand that our values are enforced in the courts and that we will continue to lose if we have an entire generation of judges that will not stand up for some of the most basic principles we've fought for over the years, like Brown versus Board Education, we're letting this one slip away from us, frankly. And just, just to be super clear, Neil Gorsuch was willing to go on the record at his confirmation hearing and say unequivocally that Brown was correctly decided and is binding precedent. So think about the fact that a year later, it is possible to take the posture at a confirmation hearing that Best not to discuss it because it may come before me again, because de jure racial segregation in the schools is bubbling up. I mean, that is an astounding sea change in discourse around what judges do. And I think you're right. We barely tracked it. It was outrage number 974 that day. Um, so my next note just says, Jeff Sessions, Justice Department, discuss. <laughs> Um, and we can talk, I mean, we can start if you want with <laughs> Richard's having just a tiny little breakdown at the far end of the, but, um, 
we we can start with the ACA uh, with the, with the, the you know career uh, uh, lawyers declining to sign a brief uh, in the new ACA litigation, and maybe we'll start with that. But but just the larger pan back, and let's talk about what policies on incarceration, on drugs, on prisons, on sanctuary cities, flipping policies easily and happily changing sides. Uh, I don't know, David, do you want to start and, and just give some kind of, of non-breakdown based assessment of, of what, what has happened at the Justice Department? Sure. Well, um, on my, I, I started at the ACLU uh, on January 9th, um, 2017. And on January 11th, I testified for the ACLU in the Jeff Sessions uh, nomination. We don't, we don't take positions endorsing or opposing um, uh, uh, nominees. But, um, and so I made it very clear that we're not, I'm not taking any positions. But here are the questions that uh, you ought to ask uh, before you vote in favor of this uh, nominee, and it, I concluded by saying, you know, we don't endorse or uh, oppose nominees, but if you had a, uh, a an intern applying for, you know, your one of your senatorial staff uh, positions with as many unanswered questions or badly answered questions in his record as Jeff Sessions has, uh, you would not hire that person. Um, so they didn't listen to me or uh, or Cornell Brooks or anyone else. Uh, uh, who testified uh, uh, in that hearing, and they uh, they uh, confirmed him, and he has acted uh, true to form and and reversed so much of what was the great work that was done by Vanita and Joyce under the uh, under the prior uh, administration on criminal justice. Uh, uh, in particular, we've gone from smart justice back to the uh, tough on crime uh, rhetoric and policies of the of the latter part of the. 20th century, which is what led, a, you know, created uh, mass incarceration. They have reversed policy, reversed their positions in many uh, 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 lawsuits. Uh, uh, they, in, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which um, uh, which was a challenge to the uh, to the public accommodations law, the Justice Department enforces non-discrimination laws, and so never before in the history of the Justice Department has it supported an argument that there is a constitutional uh, right to discriminate, which is what the baker was arguing for. And here, this Justice Department supported that. And then the, this most recent uh, event uh, last week on the uh, Affordable Care Act is, is sort of the, you know, the icing on the cake. Here, they've been trying, you know, Trump has been trying to reverse Obamacare since he came into office. And he has failed because we stood up, because people went to town halls, because people insisted that we want uh, the, the protection on pre-existing conditions. We want uh, insurance companies not to be able to charge you more if, you're, uh, if you get sick, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he was unable to uh, overturn that. He was able to take away the, the enforcement mechanism behind the individual mandate, the tax that you pay if you don't buy uh, insurance and you're not covered uh, by your uh, employer. Uh, that way he was able to get that in the tax bill, uh, really the only piece of legislation he's been able to enact. And now he's arguing in court that the Justice Department can't defend the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act because since Congress repealed that one provision of the Affordable Care Act, they must have wanted 
to repeal the rest of it, and so the court should repeal the rest of it and get rid of the protection for pre-existing conditions, get rid of the requirement that insurance companies can't uh, can't charge you more if you're sick. And you know the the rule with respect to the Justice Department is you defend a federal statute. You know you defend it's your job to defend a federal statute unless there is no reasonable argument that you can advance to defend that statute. Here there are boatloads of reasonable arguments to defend the statute, uh, and they've uh, told Congress we're not going to uh, we're not going to uh, defend it. So this is a Justice Department that has really um, just turned turned on its head the notion of justice. Anita. Jeff Sessions is, he's just terrible. He's awful. He uh, is the worst possible person to have been made attorney general that I could have imagined. And I said it as soon as we heard uh, about his nomination compared to the other candidates. And it's all borne out to be true. I, I mean, on, on every level, uh, the man is advancing a narrow white supremacist view of America. The anti, I, I don't know how many of you saw his interview with Hugh Hewitt last week, conservative talk show radio host, where Hugh Hewitt went after him uh, rather relentlessly, and I really appreciated it, about how is it that Jeff Sessions could stand for separating young children, infants in some cases, from their mothers at the border and parents at the border? And to read Sessions's and then hear him, uh, his responses, I mean, I don't know how he sleeps that night. I don't know how he uh, can, can at all be in the position that he is. And I would urge all of you to listen to that interview. It was an important moment, I think. Um, and I hope that Hugh Hewitt's listeners were, were listening. But look, Sessions has turned, uh, he has turned the mandates of the Justice Department on their head. He's largely abandoned the Civil Rights Division, uh, and, uh, completely stopped police reform, uh, in its tracks and, and done worse by emboldening uh, uh, law enforcement against the very kinds of things that a lot of law enforcement leaders were actually, you know, beginning to really promote after Ferguson and because of the movement for black lives. And this is what makes me so ill is when Trump gets celebrated for the Alice Johnson pardon. And I'm going to give folks in the ACLU credit because they're really highlighting life without parole and the movement to end mass incarceration. But, you know, Trump gets, gets, uh, kudos for that. And, you know, right. Yes, he, he should. But he has meanwhile put in place an attorney general who has not only stopped all of the criminal justice reform that was underway that had begun to reduce for the first time in decades the federal prison population, but he has now, uh, you know, massively increased the federal prison population. He's put back in place private prisons. He's reintroduced solitary confinement at every turn. He's withdrawn every piece of, uh, of work that Attorney General Holder and Loretta Lynch had tried to put in place to finally begin to address what has been one of the nation's most shameful crises in mass incarceration. Uh, and so I'm kind of like, what, you know, you can't speak out of one side of your mouth and then watch what this Attorney General is doing. Uh, and, and so I think Sessions at every turn on LGBTQ rights, on criminal justice reform, uh, on, uh, issue after issue that we care about in voting rights, a man who called the Voting Rights Act intrusive. Uh, this is a man who is fundamentally remaking 
uh, a lot of the work that we care about. And look, Jeff Sessions knows where the levers of power were. He was a US attorney, and he, unlike many others, it's not a question of incompetence. He knows what levers to push and pull. He knows where the funding streams are. He knows what the bully pulpit is. And so while I think that in Washington we have to do everything we can to resist that agenda and to resist his agenda, uh, there's no question that in the states now the work and the mantle to carry out the work that had been started on criminal justice reform, on LGBTQ rights, on everything else is that much more important. It's the work that all of you are doing in your communities. But we, we can't ignore the tremendous power that the Justice Department has in setting an agenda across the country. But at the same time, we've got to be able to fight back in, in our states um, against what I think, he, frankly, I think he's out of the norm even of his own party on a lot of this stuff. And that's, you know, it's been a lot of work on, uh, to, to push back on that. And I frankly think that if something doesn't change in November, it's only going to get worse. Richard? I think it's critically important uh, to separate out the policy uh, disagreements that many of us uh, have with Attorney General Sessions uh, and his uh, violations of the rule of law, the subversion of the Constitution. Uh, once again, I want to emphasize the importance of objective truth and focusing on the rule of law. We may have disagreements over different policy issues. That's one set of problems. The second set of problems is when you have an attorney general who is violating the rule of law as set forth in the Constitution, the statutes of this country. And by that second measure of objective truth, I will have to say that this Attorney General is one of the worst we've had since Attorney General Mitchell under President Nixon and Attorney General Palmer in the waning years of the Wilson administration where the President was incapacitated, if you remember the Palmer raids where he would go after rounding people up. Uh, and this Attorney General lied under oath when asked a question by Senator Franken uh, about his contacts with the Russians. He lied under oath. That's what happened there, and Senator Franken called him on that. I then wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling for his resignation uh, because he had lied under oath. And that's what happened. Now, what he decided to do was not to resign, but to recuse from the Russian investigation. And now I'm in the very difficult position of having to ask myself, should Attorney General Sessions, one of the worst Attorney Generals we've ever had, be fired? And having to reach the conclusion that the answer to that is no. Why? Because he goes, Robert Mueller goes. That's what's going on. So I detest this Attorney General. He lied under oath. He has subverted our Constitution. And that has nothing to do with all of these other issues that people may disagree with or agree with him about. But we are in a very, very troubling situation where we have to keep this man where he is, at least for the time being, to prevent this president from subverting the rule of law. And I have to ask is, how did we get into this horrible situation? It is a tragedy. Joyce, do you want to talk about the... the the, 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 the just sea change at the Justice Department? It is so tempting um, just about every day to play this game. Imagine if Barack Obama had done whatever. A and I find myself playing that game a lot, although I try to avoid it with the Justice Department. Can you imagine if Eric Holder had lied under oath about contacts with the Russians during his confirmation hearing? Right? I mean, 
These are very, very troubling concepts. A lot of what's happening at the Justice Department isn't quite that public. Last week there was a story some of you may have seen. Attorney General Sessions brought online 311 more assistant United States attorneys, prosecutors across the country, spread out across DOJ's 93 U.S. attorneys' offices nationwide. And what does that mean? That means that Jeff Sessions will have a greater capacity to carry out his priorities as Attorney General. And his priorities, quite frankly, are to increase numbers of prosecutions. Eric Holder and then Loretta Lynch made qualitative decisions about their priorities when they implemented smart on crime policies. They said prosecutors should think about doing fewer but more significant cases. Go after public corruption. Go after white-collar crime. Do big drug cartel cases. Do civil rights prosecutions. Do immigration cases, but do the right ones. And so under the Obama administration, prosecutors were largely directed to consider prosecuting cases involving immigration that involved, for instance, folks who were involved in violent crime, or to, to uh, prosecute folks who were trafficking human beings. The approach that's being taken under this Justice Department is very different. Let's prosecute people who've illegally re-entered the United States after being deported once without doing more, was the first wave of that. And now we're prosecuting people simply for being illegally present in the United States. We're prosecuting misdemeanor crimes and using that as the rationale for separating parents from their children. And this is what Jeff Sessions is devoting his new prosecutorial resources to. Low-level drug cases, overfilling federal prisons. This is not movement forward. This is movement back, perhaps, to the 1950s based on an ideology of fear and of hatred. And if there's one thing that I learned in 25-plus years in DOJ, it's that politics happen, right? Every four or eight years, there's a change. And then the career employees at DOJ collectively sigh and continue their work forward. And new, new administrations, they change the names that they call things by. They have to give it their own brand. But the work moves forward on a linear track based, in large case, on data, not ideology. That's not what's happening here. Jeff Sessions is taking us back to an old ideology that's failed, there's data that's indicating that the approach he's taking on criminal justice is the wrong one. There are so many horribles, we can't focus on all of them, but in, in my judgment, this is one of the worst that we're seeing. So, so I, wanna, I wanna point out that in some form or another, every one of you has said something about asymmetry, that there's a problem here, whether it's an enthusiasm in asymmetry or a focus asymmetry. And there's another asymmetry that I want to point out, and that is we keep talking about truth. We keep talking about norms. We talk about ethics. We talk about the Constitution. It seems to me that if one is fighting a two-front war, you're fighting, and you're also fighting to preserve institutions that you believe in. And you're fighting to preserve them because if and when this ends, we still need a functioning Justice Department. We still need functioning courts. We're going to need a functioning FBI. And I think that that dilutes, in some sense, 
the message. I mean, I, I think the least, the two least effective words you can say on cable television are yes, but, or yes, and, because you've lost. And I think that, you know, the example that I think of is very, very soul-searching conversations by Democrats and by, by progressives saying, uh, but will, if, if, if de Democrats ever gain control of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, we will certainly reinstate the filibuster. We will reinstate the blue slip. We will go back to all the things, the norms and the, the rules that make our institutions great. And I think the question I want to ask is what does it mean when one side is still fighting for truth and still saying words have meaning and institutions matter and the other side seems to have not a lot of compunction about burning things down? Uh, and maybe that's not a fair characterization and if it's not, let me know. But I think it's exhausting to do the work of both trying uh, to advance your interests and also prop up institutions that really do matter, even though they matter for reasons we can't quite recall at this moment. Is that too meta? Does anyone want to take a crack? Well, you're right about ju the, the, how everyone switches playbooks with respect to judicial confirmations. I mean, I think the better rule is, yes, you ought to have 60 votes, particularly uh, for the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and maybe for the Courts of Appeals. Uh, but when it's done through filibuster, uh, which is really an end run around the usual procedures. I mean, if they want to just say you ought to have 60 votes, they ought to say you ought to have 60 votes. It just requires supermajority, put someone on the United States Supreme Court or maybe the Courts of Appeals. Uh, but the way it's been handled uh, using filibusters is extremely irresponsible. Uh, it's a big problem because everyone has been talking about judging is just ideology, and this has been the message that's been permeating the law schools for decades, and now the ultra-right wing is taking this message and saying we need to put in right-wing judges and justices, uh, and that somehow it's a Christian message or whatever, once again, playing on identity, religious identity, to subvert our Constitution, uh, and it is a very dangerous trend. But once again, I think it's critically important to honor our traditions, our constitution. Uh, there is a balance of power here. The Senate has a critically important role in confirming judges uh, and justices. And by the way, they should answer the questions. If you can't say whether Brown versus Board or Roe versus Wade, which is 45 years old for Cranlight, is a good decision, or at least that you're upholding, you don't have to be in favor of abortion to uphold Roe versus Wade. You have to be in favor of 45 years worth of case law that says that during the first trimester, government stays out. And that was, you know, signed on to by two justices who were appointed by President Nixon from Minnesota. So this is not a progressive versus conservative issue. And you cannot have people standing there in front of the Senate, sitting there, they're supposed to answer questions, and they're saying, well, I can't decide a pending case. Well, Roe versus Wade is not a pending case. No more is Brown versus Board of Education. And there's one pending case I want to hear, I would want to hear under oath that they're going to reverse, and that is Citizens United. That is atrocious. I mean, talk about judicial activism. You have nine justices, who I don't think any of them are run for elected office. They don't know what a quid pro quo is. And they're sitting there saying, well, gee, unless there's a quid pro quo right in front of us, we're going to say there's a First Amendment right. It's bribery. That's all Citizens United is. So I want them answering questions under oath. That's what the American people ought to expect 
answers to the questions are no confirmation. End of discussion. Does anyone else want to take a crack at the two-front war? So I, I think the ACLU has been fighting a two-front war for uh, uh, virtually 100 years, <laughs> right? What, what, are we, what do we defend? We defend the institution of the Bill of Rights. We defend equal protection. We defend the freedom to speak. We protect, protect uh, due process. These are fundamental institutions that need de the defense of the people. They need the defense of committed citizens. They're not, you know, they're not self-enforcing uh, uh, guarantees. And, and that is much of what we do. Uh, we are a defensive organization. That, that, that's in part why so many people have come to the ACLU in the wake of President Trump's election, because they realize the need for a very strong defense. But I think, you know, it is not inconsistent to be uh, using these institutions to advance. So, you know, the, the institution of free speech, we fought for years uh, to protect that right uh, in a defensive posture when it was being, uh, when, when, when the government was targeting anarchist, first anarchists and then communists and then uh, civil rights activists and women's rights activists and the like. And ultimately, we won by, you know, by achieving very strong First Amendment protections in this country in a series of decisions in the 1970s. But it came from 50 years of organized, engaged battles for, to, to protect an institution that was in the Constitution to begin with, but didn't mean what, we, what it needed to mean until people fought for it. So I think, you know, I think it's, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Benita. I, I would just add that, I mean, it kind of returns me back to my first point, which is that for a lot of folks, and I can just say for like communities of color, the institutions, I mean, you don't want to just overly romanticize the institutions either. They have failed a lot of communities over time. Uh, and we just have to, we aren't, but the, it's always, it is the struggle that we find ourselves in right now, which is that there's the, the project to, make these institutions more accessible, more equal. Uh, and by institutions, you know, you can kind of unpack that just as you unpack the rule of law. It can mean a lot of different things. But, you know, you've got the ideals of what these institutions are supposed to be and then the constant struggle, even in the best of times, to make them actually accountable to everyone in this country uh, and not just for the status quo and the powerful. But we are finding ourselves in this situation where, uh, you know, as civil rights lawyers, we have relied on the courts for uh, vindicating the rights of the least popular or the most marginalized. And we've relied on being able to, you know, vote people into office that may be able to change the, the tenor of the conversation and the like. And those very vehicles right now are being, are, are most under threat. And so, it isn't to say that like we can do one without the other. We've got to be working on both. But what I do worry about, I'm just going to be honest with you, is that uh, the Republicans, I mean, the gloves are off. I mean, Grassley has changed the rules on the confirmation process. And, and they aren't rules. They're norms and traditions, as he keeps reminding me. Um, and so, you know, what happens if and when uh, a different party comes into power? And mind you, you know, the Democrats have a lot to work on themselves around this. It isn't that to say that the party has, has got all of the answers. But 
uh, you know, are we just going to return back to our polite kind of mode of being and say, well, these are the norms and traditions and we've abided by them even when we got completely royally screwed by the other side over them? I think that we, you know, we've got to play a little tougher. Um, and it isn't to say we, we need to understand the long-term consequences of our actions vis-a-vis -vis institutions. They will always, we've always got to imagine what does this look like when, uh, when somebody else is in power. And I'm firmly a believer that we've got to protect those things. But I also think sometimes, you know, the tools and tactics we rely on, um, you know, we want to be the rule, the, the kind of the, the, the nice people who play by the norms and traditions. And, We've got to be able to think outside of the box right now and, and be able to figure out how can we protect our institutions? How do we continue to engage in the long battle to make them more perfect for our union? And also, how do we win? And that's all, it's a part of a messy calculus that doesn't have a single formulaic answer, but it is, it's where we've got to be. Okay, we're going to wrap up with another lightning round. You are looking at activated, passionate people. They are not numb. They are not burned out. Please tell them the one thing they can do that they can take home and they can message and they can fight for with respect to the rule of law. What is something that they, they can't change the Senate Judiciary Committee rules, but what is one piece of advice? Richard, let's start with you. Something folks can do to protect the rule of law in America in 2018. Vote. It's critically important. The Constitution sets forth the responsibilities and the rights of everyone in our society, from the citizens who have an obligation to vote to elect the entire House of Representatives every two years, and uh, since they amended the Senate with uh, this Constitution with respect to direct election of senators, one-third of the senators every two years. That is your responsibility. Your friends have that responsibility. You don't want to get the word out uh, and expect Congress to do its job. Respect the Constitution uh, from the First Amendment to the Emoluments Clause. Absolutely. And I want to emphasize the First Amendment. I first became just disgusted with Donald Trump as a presidential candidate when he talked about banning people from immigrating to our country, from entering our country based on their religion. There are some things the founders got wrong in the Constitution. We know what those are, but religion is one thing they got right. Going back to the Mayflower, people come to this country for free exercise of religion. And to have a president talking that way, I've never seen that type of rhetoric in a political campaign. I don't know of any in history in the United States in a political campaign. I do know about it in the presidential elections in 1932 in Germany. We don't tolerate that in the United States. We defend our Constitution. And that's what we're going to do in November. Vanita, one action that folks here can take to defend the rule of law. I mean, vote. It, it <laughs> is. Um, and it's not just in November. It's for every election in your, it, locally. I mean, prosecutors and state, state board officials vote. So you're voting downstream in the ballot. But I will also say keep organizing. Every fight that you're fighting in your community or in Washington, there's a target. There are, and be smart about it. Figure out who the targets are, get organized, and take action. That is all that we can do right now, is to take action wherever we possibly can, be smart about it, be strategic, and vote. Joyce, vote, take action, and? So I don't have any doubt that everyone in this room will go out and vote in November. 
And the issue is this, who are you going to take with you to vote? If you live in Alabama, make sure your neighbors have ID because we have one of the worst ID acts in the country and it's hard for people to vote. Make sure people in rural areas have transportation. And most importantly, fight this horrible malaise of numbness that we have. Because when everything is bad and when there are 12 horribles that happen every day, a lot of people who are just trying to go to work and take care of their parents and their kids, they become numb. And they, it becomes very difficult for them to engage on these issues. So help your friends, help your neighbors, and take them with you in November. David? So uh, it's going to be a, a, a broken record, but uh, our, you know, our, our motto for 2018 and 2020 is vote like your civil liberties depend on it. Uh, and, and, and that is absolutely critical. Donald Trump did not win the election by getting more votes than John McCain or Donald Rumsfeld. He won the election because those who care about civil liberties and civil rights didn't come out and vote on the other side. And Hillary Clinton got substantially fewer votes, millions fewer votes than President Obama had gotten. So uh, if, if, if those who believe in liberty come forward, uh, we can uh, prevail. And, I, and I, I'll, I'll just close with a, with a quote that I, sort of the inspiration for my um, most recent book, and it, it's, it comes from Learned Hand, who was a, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York, and he was, he, he was giving a speech to uh, 150,000 um, uh, immigrants who were taking the oath for the first time to become citizens. This was a naturalization ceremony 150,000 in 1942, so many people that they held it in Central Park, and they asked a judge to speak to them. That's, they had a little bit different view of the role of courts. And he, he talked about the spirit of liberty. And he said in that, in that speech, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no court, no constitution, no law can save it. While it lies there, it needs no court, no constitution, no law to save it. Now, I think like many great quotes, this is an overstatement. I think we need courts, we need constitution, we need laws. They remind us of our better selves. They uh, and, and hold us to our uh, ideals. But it's absolutely true that liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. So I would say, in addition to vote, go out and encourage your fellow citizens to be as active as you are, to, to join the ACLU, to join a people power uh, uh, organizing group, and to engage in this struggle for liberty. Because at the end of the day, it is the citizenry who will save us, not the institutions, not the courts. Thank you. I want to I want to thank the ACLU for the extraordinary honor uh, of being uh, permitted to moderate this fantastic discussion. I want to thank David Cole, Vanita Gupta, Richard Painter, Joyce Vance for being here today. I want to thank all of you for the amazing uh, work that you do, and thank you very much. And 
thank you so much, Amicus listeners, for joining us for this special bonus episode live from the ACLU's National Membership Conference. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is, as ever, amicus at slate.com. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.